Hello everyone, and welcome to Starscream's Ghost, a Transformers podcast, your episode-by-episode podcast guide through the classic Transformers Generation 1 cartoon. I am Jeremy Graves, and joining me on the continuing adventures that is Transformers Season 3 to discuss the two episodes we are discussing today, my good friend in crime, Mr. Andy Hanley. Good sir, how you doing? I'm doing very well. I was, I was going to make a joke about this being the podcast hardest to record, but actually it's only two episodes, so it really isn't, if, if only that had been in one of our four episode blocks. But this is this is easy street. I mean, you say that, so convenient peek behind the curtain, which I'm going to let everyone know, when we're recording this, it's still technically a heatwave in parts of the UK, but also, as we discovered shortly before we hit the record button on this, there's building works happening next door to me. So if you hear some random sounds in the background it's likely that but also please realize i have closed every single window and it's molten hot where i am at the moment <laughs> yeah see I, i'm on easy street now like our, our quote unquote heat wave is over and it's just back to like normal temperatures so it's uh the, the joys of living in in the north of this wonderful nation is uh yeah we don't we don't really do heat waves for very long <laughs> there you go but ladies and gentlemen before we get any further what are we talking about today? Well, as we emphasized on the last episode, for the next for today and our next podcast, changing the format ever so slightly. We are covering two episodes today from Transformers Generation 1, that being season 3 episodes 27 and 28. We'll be getting onto those in just a few moments, because before we go any further, a little bit of housekeeping. If you are a first-time listener, thank you very much for checking out the podcast. You can find us on the likes of Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you name it, we have done our best to get there. If you enjoy the show, please do tell a friend about it, we would really appreciate it. Another place you can find the podcast on what we are very much phrasing as a long-term audio archive is on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash starscreamsghost. You can find each and every episode on there. We will we will re-emphasize, as we've done on recent podcasts, not looking for pledges to actually have you pay for more content. It's literally just a long-term audio archive solution. Speaking of archives, you can watch every single podcast that we record in video form on YouTube. If you go on YouTube and search for Starscream's Ghost Podcast, you should find our channel just fine. If you want to hit the subscribe button or a like on the video there, that'd be cool. We'd really like that. And in terms of YouTube, it is a pivotal part of how we do this podcast because on Hasbro Pulse's YouTube channel, that is where you can watch each and every episode of Transformers Generation 1 completely legitimately. And the two episodes today that we are talking about, that being The Burden Hardest to Bear and The Face of Nijika, are how we have watched them today. So Andy, these two episodes as a whole, compared to some of the recent episodes that we've had, like on our last podcast, it was a pretty good string of episodes, especially with Call of the Primitives. If you haven't heard our discussion on all of that, everybody, it's available in the archives now, and it was a good one. These episodes, by comparison, pretty blooming different. But not terrible, as I was kind of fearing at various points it might be as I started watching them. Yeah, these these are a, a solid couple of episodes. I mean, Burden Hardest to Bear, probably the more interesting of the two. I mean, it really just encapsulates one of the big themes of all of season three, which is basically Rodimus is having a tough time like into a single episode and kind of distills it pretty well. Um, like thematically, we have a very distinctly oriental theme across these two episodes. Uh, one literally set in Japan, 
one in space asia basically um <laughs> for want of a better phrase um so there, there's that but yeah like but hard is right i kind of i kind of liked the fact that it, it managed to kind of pull down to the core of, of you know one of the things we've been seeing all season long it's kind of almost like rodimus's version of um Oh, what was the Galvatron goes to therapy episode called Webworld? Oh, uh, Webworld. Yeah, yeah. It's basically like Grodimus's version of that, of just like, we're just going to drill down into the core of like, what's up with this guy in one episode. Um, and yeah, Face of the, N- the Jika is, I feel like it's a really super interesting idea. And it's like, the execution of it is fine. And that's sort of, that's it. It's, just, it's one of those episodes where you're just like, yep, that was an episode of Transformers. And there's not a whole lot to it beyond that. Yeah, Face of Nijika, I think the way I would sum it up is, like you said, good concept of an idea. Remember, it's a children's cartoon. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That sort of sums it up. So I guess with that being said, then, let's just launch into that first episode of the day. This being The Burden Hardest to Bear, Season 3, Episode 27. To begin with, in terms of the animation studio involved in this one, which kind of makes sense given what occurs, and we'll get onto that in in a few moments, it was Toei Animation that apparently did this episode, and the writer was Michael Charles Hill, who the TF Wiki describes as an American writer and producer, and in addition to Transformers, also wrote episodes of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, Cops, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Garbage Pale Kids, and also produced G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. In terms of other episodes that this person has written, The Gambler, Starscream's Brigade, The Killing Jar, though that was also co-written with Joey Kurahara Pereira, it's noted, at Pedra, sorry, uh, Ghost in the Machine, also co-written with the same person, the, the Burden Hardest to Bear, the one we're talking about, and, interestingly, it, it's got a note saying teleplay, but also The Return of Optimus Prime Part 2, which we'll be discussing next time on the podcast. Mm. I mean, that, that's sort of an interesting kind of checklist of quite a lot of sort of important character episodes. Like, it feels like he was clearly the go-to guy of like, hey, we, we, need, uh, we need a drill down on a character you're the go-to guy who maybe is is either more into that or just better at writing those episodes because there's a whole lot there that are sort of the the big sort of narrative picture stuff if you like of of you know big ticket things that were happening in and around season three in particular and of course you know let's not forget most importantly Andy well one Ghost in the Machine the conclusion of Starscream in terms of Transformers G1 but also the Gambler which had Devcon. Yes, yeah, that's our, 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 our mandated mention of DevCon in an, in an episode of the podcast. If on your Transformers bingo card you had mention of DevCon, you can tick that off right now. So, what occurs in this story? In fact, you know, there's actually another note I want to make mention of, because I wanted to see if you picked up on this, Andy. The Hasbro Pulse video, was this a VHS rip? It still looked somewhat remastered, but there were definitely it was didn't look like first generation tape, is what I will yeah. say. There were definitely some points where yeah, there there were kind of like you know tape artifacts, if for want of a better phrase, sort um, of tracking so, lines at the top of the screen. And yeah, stuff. yeah, because yeah, my, most of the episodes we've had have been pretty clean. I, I didn't mention on the last episode 
the audio sounded kind of messed up for Call of the Primitives for me, but but for the most part, like, yeah, episodes have been pretty clean, barring, like, you know, recap bits that clearly they didn't seem to have the masters for. But yeah, this looked like it was a... I, it looked too good to be VHS, I think, but it definitely looked like it was a second-generation tape that was maybe... Not, it was either a tape that was not in the best of shape or it was, yeah, it had been recorded from another source because there's some weird tracking, as you say. Yeah, it's not really essential in terms of recapping the episode, but I just actually wanted to ask you because I was thinking when I was watching it, what this doesn't feel as, like you say, good or remastered or clean. It's, I can't think of the right word to use, but the, even watching the intro, I thought... Have my eyes just gone a bit weird? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, I, I think, to be fair, that's kind of a testament to the job that they've done of um, kind of HDifying most of this series. Like, you know, it, for the most part, looks really good. Um, and, you know, even though it's not, like, native HD material, like, I don't know what it would originally have been stored on, to be honest. Um, but, yeah, this was definitely an outlier of, like, yep, that doesn't look like the, the, the kind of quality we've gotten used to from these. But from there, onto the story. It's dawn, the sun is rising, the camera is panning across a, across a coastline, where people of Japan, it turns out, are awakening to do their daily tasks, like fishing, going to shrines, sword practice. Then the Decepticons show up to cause trouble in all those places I just mentioned. We get our first team up, as far as I can recall, Andy, of Devastator and Predaking together, who were just randomly attacking Broadside right by some fishermen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's, I I was almost, I kind of almost missed the important part of like it being Predaking and Devastating. So it's like, oh, yeah, Broadside again. Like, he <laughs> <you> just, <laughs> the, the, it, kind of the archetypical character, it feels like they don't really know what to do within this show. Because clearly there was a mandate to like, please try and sell this toy, even though he's like the worst lump of plastic perhaps committed in the name of Transformers. Um, but he always just kind of appears and hangs out for a bit. And, you know, then he just disappears again. It's usually down to, like, Broadside, he's 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 big, question mark, because sometimes he's not in the cartoon. <laughs> they don't even really know what size to make him. Um, and this felt like a, another slightly perfunctory, remember Broadside, please somebody buy the toy, because we've got a warehouse full of them somewhere. Now, this, this battle seems on the surface, no pun intended because they're fighting in water, that this is going to be pretty epic. You've got two combiners against Broadside. Well, it wasn't. This leaves. This just ends really, really quickly, and, and the Decepticons leave. Very underwhelming, it has to be said. We then see Astro Train randomly appearing again, trying to ram a train head-on, as the TF Wiki notes, really smart, only to have the aerial bots arrive and drive him away. By derailing him, incidentally. We then have Bruticus and Defensor fight it out at a shrine. With Defensor in particular... And this is not something I've been able to say quite a lot, Andy, and when we've been talking about him. Actually having some interesting character moments, because he was determined to keep the people of the shrine safe. And the dialogue that he was shouting out was just very much emphasising, No! The humans! Keep the humans safe! So I thought, amongst in, in all of this melee of just battles randomly happening, that was a nice moment to see, because sure as heck, Andy, have, we've not had many moments with the Protector Bots this season. Sans one of them. 
Yeah, yeah, and certainly we've not really had a whole lot of defense or at all in this show. Like even when they get introduced in season two, it's kind of a bit of an, an afterthought. So yeah, it's, it's nice to see him in his combined form for for a little while. And and yeah, like it's it's good to to see, especially given how kind of brief the other vignettes we get here are, and they're sort of you know very perfunctory. That felt like the moment where they were maybe. Again, maybe there was a mandate to like, ah, try and sell these toys a little bit more, try and sell these characters a little bit more, because it felt like it had a bit more time afforded it than everything else. Yeah, if if they had like their own checklist of right, have we got a bit with what combiners do we have? Devastator, check. <laughs> Predator King, check. <laughs> Just this is how you check all the boxes on that. Exactly. The way this battle ends though is that Cyclonus and the sweeps arrive. But then they are rapidly driven off by Rodimus Prime, Cup, and Skylinks. However, this is finally a few minutes in where the story starts to pick up a bit. Because Rodimus is summoned to the Imperial Palace of Japan. And instead of thanking the Autobots for saving their lives, the Japanese government is very upset with them. Saying that the Autobots have frightened people and are ruining businesses. And I feel... To emphasise this, Andy, while I am not at all going to try and do any accents that may or may not have been said in this scene, I am going to recount the dialogue, because I think it does kind of emphasise to where things will be going shortly when it comes to the story and Rodimus specifically. Rodimus saying, Hey, I'm well aware of the damage that's been done, but we stopped the Decepticons from... And is then interrupted by, This is very bad for business. You frighten locals and scare tourists away. Rodimus responds with, Yeah then maybe you ought to try protecting yourselves. Good job, Rodimus. Good leader. And then one of the other locals says, your presence and the presence of others like you endangers us. So you can kind of understand already the the uh, the, the quandary that Rodimus is having to deal with. Yeah. And, and I, I was going to say, th- this is... I always quite like it when Transformers kind of visits this territory because one, it makes sense of just like... You've made a mess of things. I mean, yeah, we've joked about it, especially during kind of peak season two, where it felt like everything was getting obliterated by the Autobots on the regular. And it's like, man, they must be racking up some insurance costs right there. Just all um, the collateral damage. Yeah, but like it's kind of, and it's an interesting angle here of just like, hey, you're you're, you're ruining tourism because I don't know, I'd, I'd want to go see the big robots, but you know, uh, I guess that's why they built a Gundam in Japan. Um, <laughs> I was literally going to say that slightly, well. <laughs> slightly less dangerous. Um, but but you know, it's an interesting angle, and I, I do, I I the other part that I like about this is the kind of effectively the like well you're all the same you're all just robots and that's something that the, the comic used to delve into on the regular and and i guess the, the cartoon did especially like season one a little bit you'd, you'd have some of that of like well you're all just big destructive robots like i don't really pay attention to what insignia they've got like you're all just doing the same damage to me um and i think that's always an interesting angle so i was kind of quite into this as the setup of just like okay yeah like it's it's an interesting conundrum, and again, given Rodimus's struggles, like, doubly so. We then cut to a scene where Cup and Rodimus are talking, and this is where we get to explore more of how the position of leader is affecting Rodimus. And we've had a couple of episodes like this before, where it's maybe been mentioned either in passing, or, you know, he's literally tried to kill himself to try and get out of doing the role. But, uh, but this is the conversation we get between him and Cup. Cup starts with... Heck of a day, Rodimus responding with, tell me about it, I was at the Imperial Palace all afternoon with the Prime Minister. 
Cup responds with, Ah, uh, you've had worse times. Rodimus says, Yeah? When did they get better? That's what I want to know. Cup then responds with, What's eating you? Rodimus comes back with, I don't know, Cup. I feel boxed in. Cup then says, Like the weight of the world rests on your shoulders? You know, really emphasise it, Cup. Good job. Rodimus just goes, Yeah. And then Cup then adds to this, Like you want to run away? <laughs> then Rodimus coming back with, and, and how? The responsibilities, and is then cut off because Marissa Fairborn arrives and just brings more problems to Rodimus Prime. And the Autobot leader loses his patience and says, quote, Give me a break, will ya? Since when am I the only one who can solve everybody's problems? Just leave me alone. Then transforms and drives off. Now, for some of the silly stuff that Marissa has done in the past... This was not silly on her part. She is perplexed by this, wondering what the heck just happened. And Cup then says that Rodimus is dealing with his giri, a Japanese word that he translates as being the burden hardest to bear. Episode title. There you go, everybody. Have that on your bingo card. Check that off. Cup goes on to tell Marissa that Optimus Prime went through the same process after he first received the Matrix of Leadership, eventually learning to live with and respect his giri. Marissa decides to follow Rodimus to let him have someone to talk to. Marissa, while searching for Rodimus, and the way she decides to try and track down, more crucially, Andy, is to go, if I can turn into a car, this is where I'd blow off steam as she's driving along a motorway. It's like, sure, Marissa, sure. <laughs> now, meeting up on the highway, however, the two are then attacked by Wild Rider and Dead End, who were assigned of keeping track of Autobot activity in the area after all the other Decepticons have seemingly gone back to Char. We get a pretty fun car chase sequence, actually, along a mountain road, Rodimus during this time musing to himself that this is great and it's just like the old days, i.e. when he was Hot Rod. The two Decepticons then knock Marissa's... So I just put random car... But according to the TF Wiki, it's actually called a spinner, which is ironic because the car did spin all over the place. Yeah, yeah, I, I got really confused when I think it's like um, either Dead End or Wild Rider refers to it as a spinner, um, and I, I kind of giggle because that's also a sex thing, um, and it was like, well, <laughs> that's point. really unfortunate. Um, but uh, yeah, so apparently that is the name of the vehicle, which I'm, I'm glad that was cleared up because like that's a really weird thing to say on, on a transfer. I mean, look, I'm not trying to jump the gun here, Andy. There's a really weird thing that happens in the next episode towards the end, which yes. I am not going to ignore. <laughs> I'm just I'm forewarning you of that now. So, Marissa's car is basically just she's pushed into a lake, seemingly, though we don't actually see that until a, a scene or two later. And Rodimus is then basically forced off of a cliff when he tries to help out Marissa. The two Decepticons then go to inspect the quote-unquote wreckage, if you will, of Rodimus, and they see something glowing in the rubble. It's only the flipping Matrix of Leadership that's somehow dislodged from his chest while he's been transformed. How that yeah. happens, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, like, especially having seen the movie, you know, everybody seems to have a very secure kind of chamber for keeping the Matrix of Leadership. Maybe because he's been, like, taking it out and trying to short-circuit himself so many times it's kind of come <laughs> loose because that seems very alarming that it just, like, falls out. <laughs> it's like, that seems... You know, that's a bit like when you've got a hole in your pocket that you keep your keys in. It's just like, you know, there's the danger that your keys are just going to fall to the, the, the ground at any moment. So, yeah, Rodimus should really get that scene too. <laughs> so the two Decepticons find it 
and realize that Galvatron's going to be really happy about this, so they take it and return to Char. On Char, we hear Galvatron say, For years the Matrix has eluded us, but now it is finally ours. At last, all shall be one under Galvatron's rule. And we see this him say this in his throne room. And then Galvatron... So... Normally, Andy, what we see a Transformer do is maybe try and put the Matrix, like, into their chest. Not Galvatron. He instead puts it into his arm cannon. <laughs> Which, as a concept, I thought, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, well, also interesting because, you know, we've seen him try to use the Matrix before in the movie where he tries to open it. So I can understand him not trying to open it. But it's like, man, if you'd have figured out how to do that in the movie then maybe you could have defeated Unicron and, you know, Rod Rodimus would have been happy because he would never have become Rodimus. But yeah, it, it was, it's, it's, it's an interesting tactic, an interesting ploy. Come to think of it, actually, in the movie, Galvatron wears it like with a chain around his neck, doesn't he? Yeah, well, yeah, because he's just keeping it to open in Unicron and then realises he can't open it because hmm. magic, but... <laughs> Unicron magic. Yeah. <laughs> So we see Galvatron put it into his arm cannon, but instead of making it even more powerful, making him even more powerful, pardon me, like he had hoped, we then get visions of ancient Autobots appearing from his cannon, which includes the face of Optimus Prime himself, though not voiced by Peter Cullen, it should be said. And then all of these visions of past Autobots just basically start going, Return the Matrix! Return the Matrix! Which Galvatron is freaked out by, which yeah. is a wonderful moment. And that, that was the part that made it funny for me. It's like, the, okay, sure, visions of past Autobot leaders, but the, do they really have to do the hokey ghost voice as well? It's like, could they not just say it normally? Because that would be freaky enough. But no, we have to go full as a ghost. And it's like, no, don't, don't do that. That's just silly. Galvatron then says, Scourge, take this and destroy it. Cyclonus responds with, but mighty Galvatron, you agreed to return it. Galvatron then says, I lied! <laughs> if we can't have it, no one shall. <laughs> so Galvatron has ordered Scourge to destroy the Matrix, as I just mentioned, believing it's better for it to be destroyed rather than no one having it. But instead, Scourge muses to himself about the fact that the Matrix holds immense power and... It's not just a mere weapon. Then, Scourge inserts the Matrix into his chest, gaining immense power, so much so, Andy, rather than a gracious and elegant transformation into, like, I don't know, a truck, like we might normally see. Or in his case, he may go from just being, like, a faux surfboard into, I don't know, a paddleboard. Take your pick. But instead, he just effectively mutates... He starts getting like random like bulges like something's been rusting and whatnot. It's a really, it's quite a harrowing thing when you really look at it. You can tell he's in immense pain. That said, he does also surmise he now has the power of 100,000 Decepticons. Yeah, which is a very specific number. I mean, yeah, the, the note I wrote is just Scourge got real buff. Um, <laughs> kind of the reductive way of putting it. But yeah, I mean... Scourge found steroids. <laughs> yeah, well, that's sort of how it felt a little bit but I, I i do really like this as a as a, as a premise um of you know kind of anybody can take on this power but it's just gonna kind of corrupt them and mess them up um so i'm kind of into that idea it was also kind of 
I feel like we've we've seen at least one other Transformer cry before, but Scourge like it makes Scourge cry. Like that's that's how that's how rough it is for him. We just get to see Scourge with like sort of anime girl tears streaming down his face, which was, you know, kind of I think probably more amusing than it was meant to be for me, but I, I, I get what they were going for. Now, it's interesting what you just said actually about the fact that, you know, it's corrupting Scourge. It also, in hindsight now, and this is me probably reading far too much into this and trying to draw my own little backstory here, but the fact that Ultra Magnus wasn't a good leader when he was given the Matrix for a short amount of time in the movie, it kind of makes me wonder if maybe that plays into it as well. Like, did it just not gel with him rather than him just not wanting to be leader? I mean, again, this is the weird part about it all because, I mean, Ultra Magnus just couldn't use the Matrix. Like, it was just useless Mm. and inert to him, which is sort of the weird... That's the the part that's like the suspension of disbelief with this story is that, you know, Scourge can just use it. And, you know, regardless of the results, the fact that he's able to do anything with it at all because Galvatron couldn't in the film, you know, Ultra Magnus couldn't. It's supposed to be only for chosen ones. Um, Again, this is one of those, like... If these episodes were longer, maybe they would have had a bit more time to write in a, you know, I don't know, Scourge invents or discovers a kind of Matrix override device that lets him use it or something. Mm. Um, but it's just one of those you just have to, to buy it and just be like, yeah, okay, well, I'm I'm just, I'm interested in this as a plot point. So I'll, <laughs> I'll ignore the, the prior history of the Matrix that suggests that you can't just do this. Yeah, and also, I just quickly looked it up as well. Like, Scourge was formed from the, uh, as the TF Wiki put it, the corpse of Thundercracker. Mm, indeed, <laughs> So, yeah. not even necessarily a, a Decepticon that may have shown an element of good in him at some point. Yeah, yeah. M- much as I love Thundercracker, yeah. I'm not going to defend him on that point. <laughs> <laughs> so, while we see that happening, elsewhere, Rodimus... I'll call him Rod for a moment. Rod has basically been taken to, effectively, like, a <coughs> medical tent... Like, you might see it like a music festival, but just one that's Autobot-sized. And he wakes up learning that he is now reverted back to being Hot Rod because he no longer has the Matrix. Springer and Ultra Magnus argue that they should go after the Decepticons, but Hot Rod feels very differently about this. In essence, claiming that the Matrix, which Magnus describes as the essence of the Autobots, Rod just says it isn't worth it and just drives off. (laughs) So... Some of the one of the, my favorite lines from this was, "Are you getting a little carried away here? It's still me. It's you're still you, Matrix, Schmatrix. I know exactly what I'm saying. I'm telling all of you that I am sick of being responsible for the preservation of this universe and its outlying suburbs." Great line from Rodimus. Day in and day out, punch this Decepticon, bash that Decepticon. What's the point? This has been going for a few dozen millennia now, and I don't see it changing. Do you? You want the Matrix back? Swell. Go get it. But find some other sucker to carry it, because I quit. That was Rodimus' closing line in this scene, which I thought was a fantastic bit of dialogue. And it really does actually sum up a lot of feelings that if you really thought hard about it, he ain't wrong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, it's sort of... By design or otherwise, it's the thing that this season has built to because we've had so many, like, little peace conference scenes where, you know, Rodimus has been dragged out to try and solve this conflict or another, which is, I think, the interesting thing that never really sort of overtly gets mentioned is, like, this is over and above 
like Optimus Prime's role because Optimus Prime is always just like hey defeat the Decepticons and obviously you know he had other concerns beyond that but he had a pretty he had one job basically whereas Rodimus Prime kind of has two jobs because well more than that really because he's like dealing with the Decepticons he's got the whole Quintesson nonsense which keeps coming back and peacemaker then, yeah. between nations yeah but then yeah <laughs> he has the whole like universal peace thing that he's sort of been roped into as well and it's like he's wearing he's wearing a lot of different hats and as much as I have poked fun throughout this season of Rodimus for being either just a terrible leader or just being a bit of a sourpuss about it like it is fair he does have a lot on his plate even compared to you know his predecessor and it's not like he gets annual leave or anything i mean maybe he does (laughs) we we don't know what his holiday package is like i mean maybe he gets like you know maybe he gets some some good time off and we don't get to see that maybe he gets to go fishing with daniel or something who who can say but certainly yeah he's, he's he seems to be having a pretty rough time his good time is when he gets to revert to hot rod for five minutes yeah, yeah, and even that's only to sell toys. So, you know. yeah, to sell toys and to get the Matrix back. Yeah. <laughs> we then returned to Char, where Scourge challenges Galvatron to a fight for leadership. And at this point, Andy, you're thinking, "Oh man, we're gonna get a big ass battle between these two and it's over in two seconds. Yeah, but not, but not in not not in the Transformers the movie Galvatron versus Starscream way <laughs> of just like you know again pr- prior of kind of challenging Galvatron usually does not end well. But uh, yeah, a little bit different this time around. Yeah, Galvatron is basically just n- knocked high into the air and falls down a cliffside, and Cyclonus is also easily beaten, and it, it demonstrates. This battle demonstrates, excuse me, that Scourge has far more power now because of the Matrix. And at this point, then leads the Decepticons to Earth, saying this in the process. You will follow me now, all of you. Or else follow Galvatron and Cyclonus to your doom. Which, you got to put it like it is, Andy. He ain't wrong. <laughs> no, also, also good Decepticon leader kind of... Uh... Chatter. You, you've got to, you've got to have some of that banter if you're if you're going to be in charge. Despite having been beaten handily by Scourge, we see that both Galvatron and Cyclonus still function. Cyclonus comes to the conclusion that he must have got the immense power, that being Scourge, from the Autobot Matrix, and in the process, it's poisoned both him in body and mind. Now you'd think that Galvatron would be annoyed he got beat and everything and everything else that's gone around it, you know, Scourge disobeyed a direct order. No, the thing he's most annoyed about is that someone else is leading the Decepticons. Just as, as a benchmark line, that's what's annoyed him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's again, I mean, it, it feels like our, our, our constant cadence here is like Galvatron never really cares about perhaps the important stuff. So at least he's consistent. And then when he's annoyed about, realises he's annoyed about this, he punches Cyclonus right in the face. So much so, I think we get the Autobot equivalent of saliva on screen. <laughs> it just flashes up when he punches him. Yeah. And then he vows to destroy both Scourge and the Matrix as they head off in pursuit. Yeah, a- another kind of now episodic occurrence, like Cyclonus gets punched by Galvatron. It's like <laughs> it's actually getting quite alarming, like the domestic abuse going on here. Like, you know, it's not, not like Galvatron and Sandwave holding hands. It's a very different story for Cyclonus. Also worth noting, I think for the first time in a while, we actually see the return of the random Decepticon ship that we saw right at the beginning of season three, and possibly yeah. even in the movie as well for a brief for a brief moment. Yes, yeah, I guess they've 
I don't know. Maybe it was in for its service and it's MOT and now it's back. It's a long service, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it had been through a lot. So, you know, probably a bit bit banged up. You thought Unicron could have sorted that out for them when he made it, you know. But hey, yeah, like, yeah. It's like it's, <laughs> Unicron, the dodgy spaceship dealer. I'm like, no, no, it's fine, mate. It's, it's, it's got, only got like 20,000 on the clock. Let, let they know it's already like been, been round the horn a couple of times. <laughs> Back on Earth, Hot Rod, while watching a martial arts class, take that in, everybody. That's what I said. He sees that a student named Ozu is getting cross-questioned by his sensei for being so aggressive during a practice session, then gets some perspective and some more wisdom from the instructor in which involves the idea of that you cannot be successful without thinking without thinking about the opposite outcome. The key words in particular being, quote, he who deserts his obligation is already defeated. Rod realises that he needs to get the Matrix back. Meanwhile, Scourge arrives in Japan and just tosses a bunch of Autobots around. Broadside then... This is a really... Oh, there's a lot of random things to say in this. So Broadside grabs Scourge and then throws him to the ground. And when he hits the ground, he frightens an elderly woman. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is exactly <laughs> what happened. I did like a line from Scourge in here, though, when Broadside had him, which was, uh, it'll take more than bulk to stop me, fool. <laughs> And then Ozu, the, the kendo student I mentioned a moment ago, is of course conveniently here to come to the, the elderly woman's aid, attacks Scourge with his sword behind the knee, which I thought was a good little move, because it's like, ah oh, yes, if he can't move his knee, then he can't run. Then I forgot he can fly. <laughs> and then he begins to chase the pair. He corners them both in, a, in an alley, only for Hot Rod to arrive... In the best way possible, Andy, like it's a video game or an anime or any other cartoon you may ever see, just literally drives into the back of Scourge and sends him face first into a brick wall. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a few moments in this episode where I wish they'd been able to like play the touch in the background. One of which is when <laughs> Rodimus just drives off and he's had enough. And then this could have been the redemption moment where they play it again. And yeah, he just smashes Scourge into a brick wall. <laughs> now, what the attack also did was open up Scourge's chest plate to reveal that the Matrix is inside of him. Shocked at Scourge's appearance because of what the Matrix has done, Hot Rod proclaims that if the Matrix did this to Scourge, he has to take it back. Quote, I see now it is my obligation. I belong to it as much as it belongs to me. Quote. Which, which suggested that even at this point, Rodimus was like, I could just let Scourge keep it. Like, know, it, was right? only, it was only at that point, like, well, I guess I'd better take it back. Like, if Scourge had been fine and just kind of like normal Decepticon, he'd be like, yeah, no, it's fine. Like, fine, just keep us, I guess. Can I interest you in an Autobot emblem for your chest? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, you, you should get a proper compartment made for that thing. <laughs> only five ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the, like the, the freaking corner shop car dealer that he is. So, Rodimus defeats the Decepticon and reclaims the Matrix, Scourge immediately returning to his regular self, and once again, Hot Rod becomes Rodimus Prime once more, then offers to give Ozu and the elderly woman a lift, and drives off, just leaving the corpse of Scourge just there in the alley. 
doesn't care a lick, despite caring a few moments ago about how he was looking. Then, Galvatron arrives. Oh, Scourge! Oh, Scourge, where are you? <laughs> Galvatron and Cyclonus then find a less powerful and frightened Scourge, and they are none too happy with him. As the other Decepticons retreat, happy to see that Rodimus is now back, we then get the lines, once Rodimus has found his friends, Cup going, well, son of a gun, found that missing part, huh? Rodimus goes, not just the Matrix Cup, a missing part of... myself. To which Cup then says, and that's the point, son, no matter who carries the Matrix, that part's what you'll never lose. Apart from earlier in this episode, when you lost it, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and that's how the episode ends. It's... <laughs> You know, this is this is perfectly fine. I I really really liked the concept of Scourge having the Matrix and what it would do to a Decepticon like that. Like you say, exploring an element that's been teased in some ways before. I liked that. I liked the way it mutated him. I kind of wish this could have been explored more. It feels like, I mean, we say this a fair amount. This is something they could have stretched out into a two-parter if they really wanted to. Because there's a lot of potential for how you could build this further. But it's just a standalone episode. Totally fine. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's... This is absolutely another episode that suffers from the, like, we've only got 20 minutes to do this disease. Because, especially, again, because it bigs it up so much and you have Scourge being like, I have the power of 100,000 Decepticons. This feels like it, he should at least be able to bring the Autobots and Earth, perhaps, to the brink of, like, complete defeat. Which, you know, this series has done before, again, mostly in two-parters where it has the time to do so, of, like, everything is really dire. Um, and, yeah, like, you could have had all kinds of interesting things there, you know, maybe even, like, a Rodimus-Galvatron alliance of, like, Galvatron just wanting the leadership back and Rodimus wanting to save the planet. Like, there's, there are so many possibilities, but instead, you know, the Decepticon with the strength of 100,000 gets smashed into a wall and it's over. And it's like, well, that's a bit anticlimactic. Um, and it is a shame because, yeah, like you say, the concept is good. Even just the way Scourge is just like, you know, he's just chasing after, like, random humans. Like, I mean, it's it kind of shows that he's just sort of gone off the reservation a bit because the typical Decepticon thing is, like, humans around in a battle are just kind of annoyances and they're not really there to be cared about one way or the other but the fact Scourge gets distracted and wants to kind of destroy and kill humans is kind of like a, you know an interesting line as well um so yeah like it definitely doesn't do enough uh, it doesn't have time to do enough with that side of it um again Rodimus's stuff is kind of resolved pretty easily again over a two-parter it would be it would be interesting to have more time of him, I don't know, going off, you know, just doing what he wants to do. But instead, he's like straight to the dojo and just happens to learn exactly the lesson that he needs to learn about his ghillie, about his responsibility. And then, oh, cool. Yeah, that's that problem fixed. Um, I which... do now want to see Rodimus in a kendo class, though. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, was there like a was there like a promotional image created in Japan for that or something? You know? <laughs> Probably. We we may we may find out momentarily. Um, but yeah, and I mean, it's like even you compare it to sort of Web World, where that had a decent amount of time to dig into like Galvatron's psyche and kind of explore it a little bit. Um, and obviously, you know, it still didn't go too deep because it's a kids' cartoon. But it, it had the time to do that because that was the singular focus. Like I think almost the weird issue here is like. It's partly about Rodimus, it's partly about, like, Scourge and the, the loss of the Matrix to him, and that's, like, two plot lines to deal with in one episode, and I think that's kind of where it suffers, because even if you'd had one or the other of those storylines in an episode, you'd have had a bit more time to to kind of, you know, to chew it over. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I still liked it overall. Like, I, I, I think this was a pretty, pretty decent episode um you know and it it actually at least it didn't kind of completely mangle it's like the idea of gilly either and actually kind of clearly someone had either done some research or was like familiar with the the term in the first place so it was nice that they didn't butcher that either indeed so to tf wiki we go let's get some some trivia some continuity who else knows notes continuity notes an interesting first one i want to actually bring up here andy they say the Matrix's adverse effects on Scourge could be explained as a result of him having been created by Unicron. Yeah, yeah. I mean, although you'd have thought he would just have blown up completely and his legs would have flown off like Unicron, but yeah, I mean, it could, it could be argued like it's a milder version of that. But... This episode marks the last appearance of Springer, Broadside, Astro Train, Devastator, and Marissa Fairborn in the US continuity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that, I mean, that, that, there's going to be a lot of these at this point, I guess, because that's where we're, we're at in this show. Marissa's last appearance was getting chewed out for no reason by Rodmus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's had a pretty rough season overall when you think about it. Like, you know, she hung out with her dead father or, or, or like someone pretending to be her dad. You know, she had the whole thing with... Dirk, whatever his name was, like you know, she's not had a great time really overall. She, she, if anyone's due some vacation time, it's Marissa Fairborn. Yeah, remember the Killing Jar, everything that happened in that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another interesting note: Astro Train actually travels on the railroad. His locomotive mode was actually designed for in this episode. Yeah, he normally just does it wherever, which uh, I can get <laughs> behind. Just, just do, do do the train thing. Who needs a track? But uh, yeah, it was. I, I got to, but I did find that kind of slightly entertaining. Like, I think this is the first time, maybe the second time. I don't know, because there was that time he was hanging out with all of those other trains in that weird episode <laughs> where he tried to take charge. But I don't think even then he, like, you know, drove on the track. But this time, this time he did. So you know, good, good, good on him. In his final appearance, finally, he got to actually do what he was made for. The ancient Autobot ghosts. Let's focus on them for a minute. The ones that emerged, from, from, the ones that emerged, excuse me, from the Matrix included a generic character design that was previously seen in Desertion of the Dinobots Part Two and the Key to Vector Sigma Part One. Their colours have changed though, and he, and they dropped the the antennas on the sides of his head that he sported in the Key to Vector Sigma. Uh, Optimus Prime, obviously. A variety of other designs appear alongside him, none of which match either the leaders we saw back in Five Faces of Darkness or that we will see, mini spoiler, in Return of Optimus Prime. At least one of at least 
one is based on these guys. So there you go. They also say the yellow, the red, and the orange and blue Matrix ghost character models were reused in the Japanese Headmasters cartoon as various generic Autobots. <laughs> nice. I've got, got, to, got to make the, the most use of those character designs. Don't want to waste them. <laughs> While the episode order can vary, it's a little funny that the episode about Rodimus finally getting used to being leader of the Autobots was followed by the episode in which Optimus, in which Optimus Prime returns. Yeah, I did. I did find that kind of amusing. Like he's finally like, "Yeah, I'm going to be leader," and it's like, "Well, don't get too comfortable in that <laughs> position, my friend." Real world references set in Japan. This episode is replete with references to Japanese culture. We see a fishing boat, a high-speed bullet train passing by Mount Fuji, a kendo dojo, a woman about to offer a prayer at a Shinto shrine garden, and a surprisingly accurate rendition of the Tokyo Imperial Palace, uh, where, Rodim where Rodimus meets the Prime Minister. We also see Rodimus getting chewed out by Japanese government guys who are stereotypically worked up about robot battles being very bad for business. And of course, that's the metaphorical rising sun in the opening shot. The word giri, giri, gili, however it is properly meant to be pronounced, is a real Japanese word and concept with long roots, but the specific translation of the burden hardest to bear comes from the Yakuza, not the game, an American crime film from the 1970s. Defining it this way is questionable, as giri more accu accurately refers to one's social responsibilities and duties regardless of their difficulty. But in broad strokes, Rodimus's arc does echo the tension between Giri and Ninjo, or human feeling, that has historically driven much of Japanese drama. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the weird thing. It's like, yeah, because the episode title is not really a very good translation of that term. But yeah, like the way it's used in episode as kind of like as, as a duty on a very simple level but yeah far far deeper than that in terms of kind of your responsibility um is yeah like it's, it's actually used surprisingly well by this episode so marissa's car andy the naming of marissa's vehicle as a spinner presumably comes from the hover car vehicles of the same name in blade runner oh, okay <laughs> continuity errors Galvatron says the Matrix eluded the Decepticons for years, but he had it for a while during the movie, which happened, in this timeline, less than one year ago. <laughs> it's not really clear why Galvatron puts the Matrix in his cannon rather than his chest. <laughs> Just before he quits the Autobots, Hot Rod states that, quote, this war has been going on for a few dozen millennia, quote. Back in the episode War Dawn, which we talked about in season two, we learned that the Third Cybertronian War started 9 million years ago, which is about 750 dozen millennia. Assuming, of course, that we want to take Hot Rod's pointedly off-handed remark as being based on historical accuracy, which is kind of a stretch for a guy who's at the end of his rope and sarcastically railing about the known universe and its outlying suburbs. So there you go. If you want to, if you want to timeline continuity notes, folks, that's a big one right there. I guess if you really want to be picky about it. So they do note here: Ozu injures Scourge, a giant metal robot juiced up on Matrix steroids, with his sword. Yeah, I mean that seems questionable 
in itself. Like that, that was definitely one of those. I, I'll, I guess I'll just have to buy into this for this this part of the story to make any sense. But mm. <laughs> Unicron magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Trivia. This is one of the most well-illustrated episodes of season three, with lots of deep, detailed sh- shading, excuse me, and well-proportioned characters. That said, there are some instances where the animation gets overly sketchy to the point of being indecipherable during Scourge's attack of Japan, and the general aesthetic looks a lot like the yet-to-be-released Headmasters series. That's an interesting trivia. Now, I had never considered that. It's been a long time since I've watched any of the, the Japanese headmasters, but that's an interesting note. If this was, in essence, a mild test bed for that. Yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess it, it it figures. So yeah, like likewise, I've not really watched any of that properly beyond really stupid clips of it on the internet for quite a while. Foreign localization. So. Generally, it's kind of the same, but there are a, there are some interesting, uh, uh, unique, different titles, Andy. First of all, in French, the Canadian French broadcast and European French DVD release translated as The Burden of Being a Leader. Okay. In German, The Burden of Responsibility. In Italian, we have two different dubs. The first was The Burden of Command. And the second dub, The Hardest Weight to Carry On. That that just sounds like they're just deliberately trying to find synonyms for all of the words in the title, but okay. In Russian, it was the heaviest burden. In Mandarin, the heaviest responsibility to shoulder. And in Japanese, the mission too heavy. (laughs) That's very, very literal. So, additional note here for the Japanese version, that is, when they recover the Matrix of Leadership, the narrator misidentifies Wild Rider and Dead End as Runabout and Run Amok, which is very strange because the battle changes weren't sold at Japanese retail, but the Stunticons were. Huh. It's not more interesting that they, they didn't sell the battle charges in, in Japan. They'd have thought that would have been right up their street. but I know, right? But hey-ho, there we go. So good, sir. That wraps it up for the trivia. Any additional notes on this episode before we move on? No, no, I don't. I don't think so. Like, I continue to stand by the fact that the judicious, judicious use of the touch would have made that episode better. But you know, music licensing is hard. <laughs> music licensing money, everybody. <laughs> so from there, we advance to season three, episode twenty-eight, "The Face of Nijika." We begin with Skylinks, who is carrying Rodimus Prime Ultra Magnus Blur, remember him, and Perceptor, making it known that his exquisite sensors have detected a disturbance in a nearby sector. And then we discover Galvatron is bashing on a giant disc. Just in space. They also detect that a Quintesson ship is heading for the same location. Perceptor speculating at this point that the Quintessons don't want Galvatron meddling with their disc. So Rodimus decides to meddle with the Decepticons and the Quintessons. At the disc, Galvatron continues just bashing away at it at only he really can, taking a moment to bash Cyclonus in the process when he is warned that the Quintessons are approaching. Yep, definitely. You know it's the season three episode when Cyclonus gets uh, gets one in the jaw from Galvatron. <laughs> The Quintessons fire at Galvatron and are thankful that the Quadrant Lock, we come to find out it's called, is not damaged. However, the Autobots then arrive and join the fight. And a fun note that, did you notice, Sandy, that Skylink's transformed from like his 
spaceship mode to his Lynx mode, and they all exited out of Skylinx's mouth. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically just threw them up, is, is, <laughs> was, was my note. Um, which, yeah, is kind of a unique way of doing it. I, w- I wonder whether that was just like a Skylink that's just like, oops, I transformed into the wrong mode. How, how do I... How do I make this look seamless? Sorry, you gotta <laughs> gotta exit through the mouth, guys. I look forward now to hearing stories of children trying to make their transformers fit through Skylinks's mouth. Yeah, there's probably a few a few damaged <laughs> Skylinks's going back to toy shops that uh, that week. <laughs> At this point, the Quintessons muse to themselves that they have kept Zamojin locked in darkness for five thousand years, and it must remain that way. Refusing to let the Autobots learn anything about the lock. Unless, say, they learn about it from the other side. They then open the quadrant lock, and the Quintessons drive their ship through, in the process taking Rodimus, Magnus, Blur, and Perceptor with them. Unwilling to let the Autobots Autobots learn all the secrets, Galvatron does the best thing he can as leader, and that's volunteer Cyclonus to go with them by simply throwing him towards them. (laughs) And they go through the lock which ultimately closes. They've effectively gone through a wormhole of sorts to try and paint the picture of it for audio listeners. Unfortunately for the Quintessons, during their their travels through the Quadrant Lock, their isolator key on board their ship has been damaged. And they say to themselves, this is the only thing that can open the Quadrant Lock to allow them to leave Quadrant X, as they called it. Otherwise, they'll be stuck there forever. However, they notice a statistical anomaly i.e. the fact that the Autobots lived, and more specifically, that Perceptor made it through safely. They determined, Andy, that he would have a universal emulator, which could serve as a suitable replacement part, and then decide they they might, they will send Sharktacons to retrieve him. Yeah, which, which, to be honest, makes him sound like some kind of like custom-made arcade cabinet. But uh, Literally what I was thinking, just like, a main cabinet. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, can, can Perceptor like, run? Can he do PS3 emulation? That's, that's all we need to know, really. That's my only pressing question from this episode. Can he run early-era PS3 games? Yeah, exactly. People need to know. Or can he at least run PS2 games? Because at that point, the PS2 is still about, I guess. Yeah, in, in in 2006. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, he, he should he should be more than capable of that. You'd like to think, or maybe Xbox 360. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that that would be. Uh, that Actually, would well, that would the 360 be out by then? Probably not quite, because I think that was. Oh no, actually, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, it would have been about. Yeah, 2005 was 2006 was when the Xbox 360 came out. So yeah, like it would have been would have been cutting edge for our perceptor in this time (laughs) okay i don't know how we've managed to make this work but hear me out on this so this episode aired apparently its first air date was november the 20th 1986 but if we go on the idea this is november the 20th 2005 or whatever for the sake of argument the xbox 360 apparently first launched on November 22nd, 2005, two days after. Okay, well, of course, we're in 2006 now in uh, in, in Transformers timeline. So, yeah. Oh, good point. It's been out for a year, isn't it? Been out yeah. a good year. So, yeah. Like, he, 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 Perceptor probably waiting for his pre order of the latest Call of Duty at that point in time. <laughs> oh, we've taken this on a far great tangent. But yeah, yeah. We're, we're here for the, the deep dives into the true <laughs> nature of the Transformers. So, what has happened to everybody else? Well, 
falling into the nearby gravity well of the nearby planet that we come to find is named Zomojin, the planet referenced a few minutes ago, Perceptor announces that he is suffering from transformation paralysis and is stuck in his microscope mode. When he tries to hail his comrades, no one's responding, partly because they've been separated from him, but also because they all appear to be just completely knocked out as they are just falling down rapidly towards the planet's surface. On the planet, members of a primitive humanoid-like civilization see their descent, and one man declares that this is a sign that the devils have returned. But then adds that this time they'll die. That being the devils, not themselves, because that was stupid otherwise. Proceeding to lead an angry mob out of the city towards their location. However, a blacksmith is outside the city, also sees them falling, and goes to investigate with his steed, which I had to note down, Andy, because they name-checked it, Brutalo! Great name. And ends up recovering Perceptor. When he first sees him, though, he notices the emblem and says, Nijika. So my first thought when I saw that happen, Andy, is, oh, okay, so... Probably they think that the author... My, my honestly first reaction was, could this have been an inspiration for Shattered Glass, not knowing where this was going? <laughs> like, might it be that they saw the emblem and thought, oh, wait, that's bad, we need to hide that. That was kind of the first thought I had. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other Autobots that I mentioned, they're not doing so well after crash landing. Rodimus and Magnus hit some trees, which are as hard as rocks, according to them, including the vines, which Magnus is somehow trapped in, but we won't won't dwell on that but perhaps the bigger news andy blur he hit an actual rock and now can't walk <laughs> it's the transformers equivalent of a back spasm that he's having <laughs> yeah it, we, I, th that's the weird thing about this episode I, was, I thought this was gonna be a blur episode for a bit because he kind of gets a bit of focus early on even though it's basically just for rodimus to tend to shut up and i was like <laughs> okay well maybe this is gonna be his arc where like you know he he, he learns to calm things down a bit but yeah he's kind of just he's basically there to be the hindrance that lets all the other story stuff happen which is <laughs> you know but perhaps not quite the the, the the focus that i was expecting on him and to emphasize how much of a burden he's going to be we get some peak rodimus here because as he's kind of helping blur up and like holding his arm around his shoulder so he can walk a little bit he just says come on lean on fearless leader <laughs> Meanwhile, Magnus is going, do we know if Perceptor's okay? <laughs> Bigger priorities. This is when we cut to the blacksmith's workshop, where we see him remove Perceptor's insignia, which also turns out contains his universal emulator. As, as this is about to happen and this be removed, Perceptor has the great line of, what in the name of Alpha Trion? <laughs> as he sees what is about to happen. Now, it should be said, Andy... When this was going to be removed, I was thinking, okay, you know, it would just be like, you know, a top, like a top layer of, you know, equivalent of Autobot's skin, you know, like a little, pe little piece of sheet metal. No, he cuts around the emblem of the Autobot logo and just pulls out a really long piece of, like, machinery and really heavy-duty equipment. I'm thinking, the heck? Have you just pulled out his heart? Yeah. What just happened? Yeah, it sort of, it, it definitely gave me questions about, like, how... Is, is this how all the Transformers work? Do they all have, like, a big thing underneath their emblem? Or, like, is this just... Is this a Perceptor thing? And it just left a giant hole in his body, quite frankly. And I'm thinking, oh, man. That's, 
You got the raw end of the deal. From here, though, Perceptor has been tracked by the Quintessons because they caught his transmission and are trying to home in on the signal based on that. So Sharktacons are dispatched to retrieve Perceptor. But someone was watching their departure on the ship, that being Cyclonus keeping well hidden. At the blacksmith's... I was about to say layer, that's really not the right word. At the blacksmith's workshop. There you go, much better word. Perceptor's insignia is now on a f the face of a female robot called Nijika, which we see the internal components start connecting like to the to the part of the element and whatnot that was extracted from his body. And then the emblem is then effectively masked by some kabuki-style makeup. And then, seemingly now, Nijika can talk. But the Sharktacons arrive, and this blacksmith, Andy... It's not just some low-level humanoid-like creature. No, no, no. This guy can properly beat up some Sharktacons. The Sharktacons get utterly owned by this guy, and this was great. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. I, I, feel like, I kind of feel sorry for the Sharktacons, because they've really just become, like, four guys. They're, they're sort of like the, you know red sleeved cadets of this series at this point where they just get beaten up or they're too stupid to do anything much um feels like they've fallen quite a long way from the movie whereas i guess they just have strength in numbers there but they're they're, they're really not much use at this point but at this point andy we discover what the name of this blacksmith is it turns out they are named katsudon <laughs> yes yes they are <sighs> we were doing so well. <laughs> I know, right? We were doing so well. <laughs> as soon as I heard that, I think my initial reaction was, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> we then sort of get a bit of an info dump, which I've not quoted verbatim because there were various accents involved and I just decided a summary would be better. So Perceptor learns that the planet Zemojin and its inhabitants were once an advanced race that had developed interstellar travel, and they were protected by a guardian named Kodu-Ri. Katsudon's ancestor, Nikodon, built Nijika, who is referred to as a sky dancer randomly, as an exploration drone, hoping to make contact with other races. We also find out that each Zemojin inhabitant are able to channel the power of the stars... In, via the crystal that they each have on their forehead that allow them to open a door of the statue of their ancestor in the centre of the city. Keeping up, everybody? However... Uh, can, can, can I just say, I, I, I'm not sure I was keeping up with the episode by this point. I was just like, <laughs> okay... There's a lot. There's a lot going on here. I'm not sure. Like I'm massively invested in anything that's going on with this race of people, but I'll. I guess I'll just see what happens. So what I'm hearing is you're glad I was doing the note taking. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely <laughs> one of those. Like there's quite a lot here, and none of it is particularly kind of like grabbing me by the hand and saying like, "Hey, let's go." It's like I'm kind of intrigued with this whole perceptor angle, but the rest of this is just. It seems like a lot, and it's not really. Where's, where's the payoff going to be to any of this? In the backstory info dump, at this point, we see that the Quintessons attack at the moment that they have opened the door on their ancestor's statue. And what looks like, Andy, that they do actually kill a lot of civilians, because a lot of dead bodies just laying around in this melee that we see. Yeah, yeah, I guess this is another very season three moment of just like, oh yeah, people just die in this series now. <laughs> now, with... 
during all of this destruction, they damaged their rocket, that being the Quintons damaged the inhabitants' rocket, and also damaged the internal components of the Kodu Ri statue and the Nijika robot that was going to travel to the stars and meet other races. Then, as the Quintessons leave, they seal the Quadrant Lock, which they implant there, and in turn, black out all of the stars. Now, I mentioned that the Zamojin use the power of the stars to have all of their abilities. Because, the, this, because this happened, it means they now can't harness the power of the stars, because they can't see them. So they were reduced to... They were reduced a heck of a lot technologically and basically de-evolved into a fairly primitive race and it's not been fun for them since. Having heard all of this, Perceptor concludes he needs to tell the Zemojin about what's actually gone on here and informs them that about the Quintessons and their existence and seemingly it's them that has caused this and they're just being hidden from the stars. They've not been taken away. Now, he, that being Perceptor slash Nijika, and Katsudon go to the city to warn people that the Quintessons have returned. Elsewhere, Rodimus, Magnus, and Blur are attempting to move, but the injured Blur is slowing them down. Irony. Blur then tells them to leave him and go and find Perceptor, as he's the only one that can repair him. Though not happy about this predicament, they agree. Though moments later, Andy, this proves to be a mistake, as a band of warriors find Blur, call him Devil Spawn, and attack him. Yeah, Blur, Blur really not having a good day in this episode. He must have, th this is maybe why we don't see much of him in this season. He's just like, no, nah, this is not going to end well. I'm just going to stay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go on a mission with Omega Supreme, thanks. <laughs> on the Quintesson ship, following the utter beating that the Shartacons received by Katsudon, the Quintessons are debating what to do. One of them decides that they're going to have to go to the surface to try and sort this out. But if a single Zemojin can damage two Sharktacons to this degree, what chance do they have? Cue Cyclonus to sneak on board, and effectively offer them a deal. Give Galvatron the secrets of the Quadrant Lock, and he will go with one of the Quintessons to the surface to help sort this all out. Because, as he put it, Andy, unlike the Sharktacons, he's not stupid. <laughs> Which I've got to say, I agree with. Compared to the Sharktacons, yes, in a perhaps more general sense. Uh, jury's <laughs> out, but sure. Looking for Perceptor, Rodimus and Magnus are then attacked by a group of warriors who also call the Autobots Devil Spawn. And they're sort of on a cliff edge at this point, and Rodimus is effectively pushed off of it and rolls down the mountain, of which, having completed all the rolls, Rodimus then goes, well, that was a barrel of laughs. Which I won't lie... I did laugh. Yeah, that's uh, that. That's some Springer level quips <laughs> right there. He's been been learning from the best. He then gets back to the top of the mountain ridge, and he and Magnus drive off those inhabitants. They then locate Perceptor's now former body with a giant hole in it, obviously without the emulation chip, whatever it was called, because he is offline. Rodimus and Magnus then decide to search this search around the city to find where the heck this has gone. Just holding Perceptor's now former microscope body. Just like it's a giant box you're taking to a shop or something. And Rodimus, in the only way that he can say this, says to Magnus, Where do we go? The neighbourhood universal emulator shop? <laughs> Which I call Andy one of those high street shops that sells video games that isn't an actual chain. 
Yeah, yeah. They've got they've got some very weird cartridges under the counter that if you know if you know who to ask and when they'll they'll show you. Unlock your phone here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Type stuff. It's, yeah, it's it's like it's like the old uh, the old. The, this is a complete tangent, but like there used to be a record store where I used to live. Like if if you knew the right person and you asked them, they'd bring all the bootlegs out from the the back that they weren't <laughs> supposed to be selling. Uh, it was good good times. Sure, it's a great analogy. I'll take that. At the city that we come to find is named Tozin. The Samojin are preparing to execute Blur, which I was imagining a whole bunch of people going yes <laughs> at the prospect of this. And how are they going to do this? They're dangling him over a molten pit of goo. I wrote down because who knows what it actually is. And to prove how hot it is. You know, sometimes, Andy, you see in films when they have, like, a ceremonial sort of effigy of something that they're going to burn. It might be, like, the head of something they're going to burn. In this instance, it's a faux Quintesson head. So it's abundantly clear it was definitely the Quintessons that attacked them very, very many moons ago. Indeed. At which point, to try and get things moving along, now that Cyclonus and the Quintesson are down on the surface, Cyclonus just starts shouting, BURN HIM NOW! <laughs> Inciting the Zemojin to start rioting a little bit and wanting him lowered. But the Quintesson that's with Cyclonus is worried about the attention being drawn to them. But Cyclonus then aptly says that you clearly don't understand mortal psychology, do you? Because everyone starts joining in the call for vengeance. However, the current Zemojin Empress commands them to stop lowering Blur because she reveals that Perceptor slash Nijika have arrived and have explained the entire situation then explain it to everyone nearby. However, the Quintesson then starts shouting that the doll, i.e. Nijika, is possessed, putting the crowd back into a mob mentality. In turn, it makes them all charge at Nijika. Of course, the Quintesson realises what they've done and the fact they actually need Nijika because it's got the, the emulator that they need, which then prompts the Quintesson to say, No! I didn't mean... And then Cyclonus to cut in and go, FOOL! Summon the ship! <laughs> Cyclonus then leaps into action, flying and then grabbing Perceptor and orders the Quintessons to bring their ship nearby and Katsudon in the process leaps into the air, grabs onto Cyclonus's leg as he is starting to cause destruction in the city. We then get to the Quintesson ship. Katsudon also makes it inside, but is very quickly just restrained effectively by some kind of electrified headgear. I don't know what it was, but it was very similar to how the headgear that, that Grimlock used to transfer his smart consciousness over to Computron. Then the Quintesson says, Greetings, Perceptor. You will do exactly as I command, or else the Zemojin will perish. Perceptor hands over the emulator by literally removing his face from the body of Nijika, which then just conks out, effectively. And then the body is just thrown out the ship. And as, as Cyclonus tosses the body out of the ship, sorry, it's actually the Quintesson that tosses the body out of the ship, the Quintesson then shoots the rope that is holding Blur above the molten pit, causing him to fall into the molten liquid. At that moment, Andy, you're thinking, Blur's done. Never again. We'll never see him. Any anti-Blur people can rejoice. Then, Andy, I'm going to attempt to recreate this as verbatim as I can. Because this was incredibly uncomfortable. But I think it needs to be documented for preservation purposes. Oh, 
Yeah. Yeah. That, that That's it. Good. Warm. Nice and hot. Just right for getting the kinks out. <laughs> Which is what... <laughs> he then basically... He then just suddenly transforms, launches out of the pit and says, Ah, oh, that fixed up the part of my body that was really messed up from earlier. So effectively his back spasms now stopped because he's had a warm bath. Shock horror. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think the intention of that scene was what it sounded or felt like, but... Oh, come it, on! It, <laughs> I, I don't know, I think they were trying to put across, uh, you know, it feels really good when you get like a kink out of your back and, and you know, you, you get... You go to the chiropractor, but yeah, it was kids' cartoon people. Kids' cartoon. <laughs> so Blur transforms, launches straight up to the Quintus on the ship, which even Rodimus and Magnus go, Can you wait for us? We'll go in together. Blur then frees Katsudon, who then just jumps out the ship, which Rodimus was like, Well, that was easy. <laughs> and then Magnus takes on Cyclonus. Then Blur grabs the emulator, Magnus takes out Cyclonus but just throwing him out of the ship as well, effectively. And then they have escaped the Quintesson ship. The Zemojin Empress then fears what the Quintesson is going to take from them this time as they're now trying to escape. But Perceptor, now in his real body, says that the Quintessons are about to learn the joy of giving. I should also add that they had actually kind of already utilised the, the emulator thing. They basically used it like you're doing a contactless payment on your phone now, just kind of held it up to a scanner, and then it worked. And that's basically all they had to do. Are we saying that Transformers also invented Apple Pay before, <laughs> before Apple did it? We're going sure. to add that to the list now as well. <laughs> the Quintessons pass through the quadrant lock, and as it fades, all the stars that had disappeared now return. That meaning it has restored the power of the starlight that the inhabitants used to use to harness the, themselves as a nation. Perceptor highlights, it's no wonder the Quintessons wanted to lock them away if they're this technologically advanced. Speaking of being technologically advanced, Andy, I think we saw them catch up on like a thousand years of technology in the space of like 10 seconds. Because suddenly it's a completely different looking planet to what we saw moments earlier. Yeah, not quite sure how that works, but sure. With the Quintessons unable to reseal the quadrant lock, the Autobots realise that the Zemojin's ability is actually telepathic in nature. And that is how it is powered by the starlight. We then see the the central intelligence, as I'm going to call it, i.e. the giant statue, uh, sort of open up and reveals the portal. At which point Skylinks arrives, conveniently, and then Perceptor asks Katsudon if he will continue his ancestors' research, that being the spacecraft. Katsudon vows that Perceptor will meet Nijika again, out among the stars. And that's how the episode ends. Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much. This was. I, I. I don't know whether this is just kind of like having watched as much of season three as we have a bit of fatigue, but this was definitely one of those episodes where it's like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with this. I just don't really care. Like, uh, there's something. It, it, there's something about this story uh, as opposed to a lot of the other 
alien world stories we've had in season three where it just didn't really land with me and so it's like yeah i'm going through the motions here i'm watching this episode but there wasn't any point where it's like oh this is a really interesting kind of concept or an interesting take on things it's sort of i don't know it, it was it was all very passable um but there was not really much noteworthy out of it at the end like i feel like i didn't really learn a lot about any of the characters there wasn't really any kind of good allegory you could take back from like socially or politically or anything it was just like yeah okay that was decently enough written story i guess in terms of the animation studio on this episode it was acom i don't think i actually mentioned this at the start of the recap in terms of the writers it was mary and steve skeets i believe it's pronounced or sorry correction mary screens i think it's pronounced and steve skeets okay quick bit of background on them Mary Skeets is an American writer, and in addition to Transformers, wrote episodes of G.I. Joe and Gem and the Holograms. In the realm of comic books, she and Steve Gerber, or Gerber, not sure how you meant to pronounce it, created Omega, uh, created Omega the Unknown for Marvel Comics. And this is the, oh, in fact, you know what? Apparently the last name is pronounced Screenies. Okay. So there you go. Would never have guessed that based on the spelling. And this was the only episode of Transformers they were involved in writing. When it comes to Steve Skeets, all it's, it says about this person is they are an American comic book writer. Fair enough. I mean, this that also does maybe lend, like, if this is the only episode of Transformers they've written, they'd written, this also felt like one of those episodes that could have been a non-Transformers episode. Like, you know, you could easily have had this sort of alien race and this whole thing around pretty much anything um and the, the transformers involvement was you know kind of secondary in in a sense to the, the broader ideas quick bit of additional info on steve skeets american comic book writer known for work on such titles as aquaman hawk and dove thunder with full stops in between each letter uh, thunder agents and plop which i won't lie i'm not familiar with <laughs> so in terms of additional notes Continuity notes. Perceptor is equipped with a universal emulator, which, at the very least, mimics the functions of the Quintesson's isolator key. It is presumably responsible for letting Perceptor take control of, Nij of the Nijika construct, and may be the reason why the Autobot insignia morphs into Nijika's face. Yeah, that was, that was my assumption from it. Uh, they also note about the Autobots exiting through Skylinx's mouth. Speaking of Perceptor, actually, apparently this episode marks the last appearance of Perceptor in the Western cartoon. Yeah, which is it's sort of interesting, you'd have thought, because he's, he's been quite a stalwart, really, since being introduced to, to this series. Like, although he's not really a sort of a big personality, per se, like, it feels like he very much... He kind of feels like the Wheeljack and Ratchet holes after their sad demise of being mm. like the the smart sciencey Autobot, and so he's had a surprising number of appearances for the kind of class of character as a toy you would uh, you would kind of have him pegged as. Real world references: the character and set designs of the Zemojins are loosely based on some aspects of ancient East Asian culture, from their clothes, architecture, and Buddha-esque guardian to their harsh mountain climate. Katsudon is generically patterned after a Chinese warrior, whereas Nijika's dress and face paint closely resemble Japanese geisha, complete with hand fan. I remember in hindsight, I actually said kabuki makeup, I meant geisha makeup, now that I think about it. But that's the one I wrote down when I was taking notes, so there we go. 
There are some notes about sort of the naming conventions in this episode. If you want to read those, I encourage you to go to the TF Wiki. Some of them fairly obvious, but we won't dive into them on here. Trivia. Internal Marvel slash Sumbo documentation shows that this episode is supposed to be titled merely The Face of Nijika, but an extra THE wound up on the on the on-screen title that's never been corrected. Yeah. Oh, the face of the Nijika. Okay, that's yeah. ironic because I just thought it was called the face of Nijika based on the on the uh, on the Hasbro Pulse version. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, because it, it is a completely weird. Like, why is it the Nijika? That doesn't really make sense. So. Mm. This episode was originally assigned production code seven zero zero one zero nine, but the script was subsequently put on hold, quote unquote, by Hasbro for unknown reasons. When later revised and approved, the episode is given the production code of 700-113, according to a piece of internal correspondence from Marvel Productions. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those episodes that can slot in anywhere, so I guess they probably weren't too worried about that. Foreign localization. In French, this was known as the face of the Nijika. Uh, additional note here. Concerning the European French dub, this episode was later redubbed in the 2000s, probably on demand from Declique Images. I think we said that's how it's pronounced. That may be because the original episode was lost or simply not usable. The dubbing implied a whole different team of voice actors. Three other episodes got the same fate. In German, this was known as Nijika, the Heaven Dancer. That's quite, that's quite poetic. I like that. In Italian, we have two different dubs. The first dub is The Celestial Dancer. I really like that as a title. Yeah. The second dub, Nijika's Face. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> In Mandarin, this was called Fairy Beauty. Okay, that's also quite good. And in Japanese, the title of the episode was Save the Planet of Telepathy. <laughs> Just straight, <laughs> straight for the jugular. None of your fancy... None of your fancy airy fairy names. <laughs> Additional note here from the Japanese version. Much like the Golden Lagoon, this episode was not broadcast in all regions of Japan and thus has no official air date. While what day and what regions it was broadcast in are not currently known, official episode guide uh, guides excuse me list it being between June 5th and June 11th, 1987. So there we go, and I think that wraps up this particular episode. So, Andy, any other notes or thoughts you have on this episode before we uh, before we wrap up the show for today? No, no, nothing, nothing much to to say on this one. Well, from there, everyone, what is next time? It is the finale of the season three episodes because we have now reached episodes twenty nine and thirty of season three, which means, Andy, it is the two parter, the return of Optimus Prime. We've been waiting for this since Dark Awakening, which at this point in the, the timeline we've been recording these podcasts was a blooming long time ago. I mean, you say I, I've been waiting for this since the movie where the narrator promised us that Optimus Prime will <laughs> return. And I've been sat, you know, watching watching the clock. When will Optimus Prime return? And hopefully in this one. I mean, may, may, maybe maybe the Japanese title for this is something completely different and actually Optimus Prime barely returns. Who can say? But yeah, pretty sure. I, I'm... This is definitely, like... These are definitely episodes I have watched before when mm -hmm. I was a kid and I don't think I've ever rewatched since. So I remember nothing about how this comes about. 
Um, mm. So I'm I'm actually super curious because you know my toy line memory of Optimus Prime returning is like Power Master. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe there was just like a new Optimus Prime toy, and then there was the Power Master one after that. I forget. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm interested to see how this plays out in in cartoon form because I really don't remember. Yeah, the only thing for me that I can recall, uh, I this may have been like maybe very early two thousands when I may have sort of seen these episodes, was I I remembered how Optimus Prime died in the movie and then seeing the start of the two parter and going that's not how he was. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't know about Dark Awakening, which makes it make sense. Yeah, that that figures. Yeah, because I suspect I certainly don't recall ever having seen Dark Awakening, so I probably probably had a similar response at the time. I I, I would imagine. Yeah. So what we should say, everybody, as well, is ahead of our next podcast, which will be available in a couple of weeks' time when we talk about the two-parter, might be worth going back and watching and or listening to our our talk and discussion on the episode of Dark Awakening from earlier in this season because that literally leads straight into this into this two-parter storyline. We will probably very very broadly cover some brief details as to what happened in that and where things left from our perspective leading into it. But if you want to get the whole discussion on that, we encourage you to head back into the archives and listen and or watch our discussion on that because that that was a, we were not expecting it and the end boy did that leave a mark on us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the one of the highlights of the season, um, in terms of kind of its narrative, and yeah, th- thanks to the the Hasbro Pass episode ordering, we've been waiting a long time to to get to to get our our kind of uh, our payoff from that episode. So uh, be be quite exciting to finally get there. Mm. Out of interest, are you going to rewatch Dark Awakening before delving into the two parter, just anecdotally, or are you just going to go straight into the two parter? I'm. I feel like the important parts of Dark Awakening are still seared into my brain, so I think I'm <laughs> safe just to to watch it. Like I'm still, I'm still having the nightmares, to be quite honest. So I think I, I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah, because I I was thinking about this the other day, and I think I'm not gonna rewatch Dark Awakening partly because I just want to see in the context of how we've watched it, how well does this all land. Yeah, and then does it and like does it maybe having the gap in between it help or hinder it? I'm just I'm mildly curious, so I kind of almost just want to go in quote unquote blind, without having the stuff immediately before it. Yeah, yeah, for for, for sure. Yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm definitely interested to see how this is how this is gonna go. Because again, like you know, Kid, Kid me owned like the new Optimus Prime toy, but again, like all, all of my memories of his return were all predicated around the comic rather than this cartoon version so uh so yeah should be should be an interesting one and quite 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 the promise of the finale of this season so indeed and that will be next time on the podcast ladies and gentlemen and once again if you have enjoyed the show and you are a first time listener why not tell a friend about it we would really appreciate it you can find it in audio form on the likes of apple spotify google stitcher soundcloud and of course there is our patreon page patreon.com slash ghost which is our long-term archive for the podcast in audio form and to reiterate not looking for donations of any kind. It's literally just a way to have a long-term audio archive readily available for you. If you want to check out the video version, be it after the fact or if you have been watching the video version, hello to you. Hope you're doing all right. Thank you very much for checking it out on YouTube. Once again, you can find our channel on YouTube by simply searching for Starscream's Ghost Podcast. 
I, I would, we, I would, I, I, say, I would also like to say if if you're not watching the video version, you should check it out because Jeremy has finally like mastered the optimal configuration of all of his Transformers toys in the background. So toys, <laughs> his collectibles in the background, <laughs> and then finally, like uh, we, we've had some again behind the curtains. I'm like, how how do how do I fit all of these in a way where they're not just going to collapse like five minutes into the, <laughs> the episode? But you've you've done a beautiful job, and it's it's a thing of a thing of glory. So so please check that out on the video version. If I get any more Transformers to add to this, I'm screwed. Seriously. Yeah. Well, you're just going to have to start like like having like your webcam just like you know horizontally <laughs> instead, so that they'll all fit in. Is is that that's the answer, or vertically rather? Or just get another shelf next to it. That might help, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Or, or just, or just do the video podcast without you in it. It's just going to be like a shot of <laughs> a shot of your collection instead. I'll just keep cutting back and forth between different transformers on my shelf, for different <laughs> lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just switch switch them in as appropriate. But, uh, but hey, we've we've not got too many episodes left, so hopefully, unless you've got more more on the way, you should be safe. Who knows? <laughs> Genuinely, who knows at this point? Because occasionally new stuff gets announced, and I'm just like, I'm really tempted. It's, yeah, it's it's a problem. Honestly, the worst ones at the moment are the the, the Kotobukiya Bushijo statues they've just announced in Japan. Like the Megatron one looks so damn cool as like a Bushijo female character, and it's like that shouldn't work, but it does, and I really want it, but I don't want to spend two hundred and fifty quid on it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the prices of those things were insane. Like, I mean, quite rightly so, because they are they are things of, of beauty. But, uh, but yeah, that's it, it's a lot. Yeah, I am interested to see though how the Bumblebee one ultimately looks. That might be that'll be an interesting thing to see. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but I digress. Everyone, thank you very much for listening and or watching. Hope you've enjoyed the show. As mentioned, if you want to have the primer of Dark Awakening before our next podcast, you can find it in the archives of our show right now. From myself, Jeremy Graves, from him, Mr. Andy Hanley, you've been listening to Starscream's Ghost, a Transformers podcast. Until next time, take care. Bye, everyone. <laughs>